Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Greetings, comrade. Our interview with Dmitry Potapenko happened, and it was about an hour and a half long. However, I want to do it in the news style, fully dubbed, and that has taken us more time than we expected. So, meanwhile, let us continue on with Stalin. There's never enough Stalin anyways, and in this episode I would like to cover his personal involvement in the Civil War. If you want all the general details, then they are in my Lenin series about this period, but like I said in previous episodes, we'll be focusing on Stalin and what he did during this period personally. Now, a very important spot for both Stalin's career and future marriage was his work in Tsaritsyn. See, in um, May 1918, or my other sources say April the 6th, or June the 6th, depending on the source, it's all messed up, but around that period of time, Stalin took charge of the grain collection in Russia's, at that point, extremely fertile Sutherlands. Together with his secretary, Nadezhda Aluliyeva, a detachment of infantry about 400 strong, and two armored cars, he entered Saritsyn, which is now called Volgograd, and, you know, for a long while it'll be called Stalingrad. That's obviously situated on a bend of the lower Volga. It's a strategically important city, and also it was a key key supply. The town was defended by the 10th Army, which was commanded by Voroshilov, who was an ex-Tsarist non-commissioned officer, who would later on become Stalin's closest military associate. Stalin's assignment was to maintain the supply of grain to the capital. His ambition was twofold. Number one, he needed to obtain a military command... And number two, to undermine the authority of Trotsky, who at that point was People's Commissar for War, at that point being active on this southern front. It was also here, in Saritsyn, that he really began to build his own core of supporters in the military, starting with, well, Voroshilov, of course. These guys will later play an important part of his true rise to power. Stalin arrived in Saritsyn, 
he's often compared to these uh, Oprichina officers of uh, Ivan Grozny era. He arrived and my, even my communist sources call him a, quote, new broom. He was basically here to, to shoot people and chew bubblegum and he didn't even know what bubblegum was. So, he had promised Lenin that, quote, My hand will not tremble, we shall treat our enemies as enemies. He just reorganized all the police there, and according to a general who later gave, gave his accounts to the White Army, showed great efficiency in his policing work. This was reflected by an increase in the prison population and the discovery of a growing number of counter-revolutionary plots, realistic or, you know, otherwise. Stalin had the plotters and all known associates of the plotters, disregarding their gender or age, executed. And, you know, of course, he kept Lenin informed by telegrams, where he combined basically patting himself on the back with some expressions of urgency. For example, when Tsaritsyn came under pressure, Stalin used this as an excuse to kind of, you know, say to Lenin that he should kind of be more active in its defense. Now, one of my sources say that he sent this in 7th of July, others, again, June, because really, at this point, all the sources mess around with dates a lot. And I quote, I am rushing to the front. I write on business only. The line south of Tsaritsyn has not yet been restored. I am chasing and yelling at everyone who deserves it and hope to restore it quickly. Be sure we will spare no one, neither ourselves nor others, and we will produce the grain come what may. If only our military <coughs> specialists, the fatheads, had not been idle and asleep, the line would have held. If it is restored, it will be despite and not because of them. Communications with the center are so bad that we must have a man on the spot with full authority to take urgent actions without delay. Yeah, now you know, you know, you've been listening to Stalin's series so far. Here you can see Stalin's um, aspirations of the future, so to speak. The telegram is also kind of a flank attack on Trotsky, who had literally introduced these military specialists who were ex-Sarist soldiers into an army. The move was opposed by those who believed that a revolutionary army should only consist of a people's militia fighting as partisans. Voroshilov even, even thought that way, even though he was a ex-Zarist and commissioned officer. And he felt happier handling small, smaller units. And of course, Stalin opposed it vehemently because, well, he hated Trotsky. Stalin now made a bid for military authority. Three days later, he sent Lenin a second telegram. And I quote here. If Trotsky will, without thinking, give out mandates left and right about Trifonov, Donskoblesch, Autonomov, Kubanskoblesch, Kope, Stavropol, to the members of the French mission, who, by the way, deserve arrests and being shot, and so forth, then, with confidence it can be said that in a month everything in the North Caucasus districts will be lost and this region as a whole will also be completely lost. Please punch him in his head that there is no point of giving assignments without listening to the advice of the locals. Otherwise, there will be a scandal for the Soviet powers. And uh, further on from the letter, <clears throat> the question about provisions naturally overlaps with the war question. For this I need military authority. I already wrote to you about this, but I haven't yet received an answer. Very well. In this case, I will, myself, without any formalities, depose those commanders and commissars who are destroying our cause. 
This is told to me by the interests of our cause, and of course, any lack of papers handled to me by Trotsky will not stop me. Nine days later, Stalin got his command. Under the command of Lenin, the local Soviets created a new war Soviet of the North Caucasus War District, who was obviously under the command of Stalin. Now, as my communist sources say here, because they put a lot of funny comments in their biographies, <clears throat> quote, As a sign of his great organizational skills, his reliability, and absolute dedication to the ideals of the revolution, Stalin was assigned with establishing order, uniting the separate fighting squads into regular army units, and was tasked with installing correct commanders and disposing of everyone who was not doing their job well enough. Now, there are some other, other views on how he got his command. For example, historian Avtokhranov has suggested that Stalin had blackmailed Lenin into giving him his appointment by threatening to withhold grain supplies. However, I couldn't find any documental evidence for this, and Avtokhranov himself also doesn't provide it. Now, even though we could imagine that Stalin would probably blackmail, blackmail someone... In fact, he most certainly will, and will blackmail someone in the future, and he would do that regularly. Still, however, uh, there is no trace of this, and maybe he has edited it outside of, you know, reality, as Stalin has done previously and later on, but I don't want to make such claims as of now, because, hey, opinions are opinions, so um, the, the things Stalin did are, well, scary enough. Because, you know, obviously, Stalin used his new command to undermine Trotsky. Uh, Stalin was heading a military opposition, which is also led by Voroshilov, Yegorov, and a cavalry commander, Semyon Budienny, uh, who was, by the way, another ex-Tsarist NCO. He'll become later. Stalin firstly noticed Budienny in July 1918, or August 1918, depending on the sources, when uh, Budienny managed to win an argument with Trotsky's appointee Snesarev. Budienny then led a successful cavalry raid with Voroshilov. So, when the ex-NCO asked Trotsky to develop a new Bolshevik cavalry, as he used to be a cavalry commander, Trotsky objected. Quote, The Red Army could not develop cavalry since this is a very aristocratic family of troops commanded by princes, barons and counts. But as Stalin got his command, Budionny got his cavalry anyways. And, you know, some of the Red Army's future leaders, Timoshenko, Rokossovsky, and Zhukov, yeah, they all served among its commanders. Just like Voroshilov, Budionny will remain close to Stalin, and he will display a loyalty, which, you know, Stalin rewarded him with by actually allowing Budionny to outlive Stalin himself. This will become very interesting later in the story. Budionny is not going anywhere. Stalin then decided that, hey, we are, we are not allowing Trotsky to do anything. How about every officer ever whom he has installed and, you know, considers important, the Trotsky specialists? So, you know, uh, Stalin imprisoned the senior specialist and most of his staff on a barge anchored in the middle of Volga. This is gonna be fun already, I tell you. Trotsky sent an angry telegram which Stalin dismissed with the instruction, disregard this. The specialist himself, the kind of older specialist it's himself, was eventually released, but everyone else on the specialist staff 
Well, um, yeah, they all died because the barge went down with everyone on it. And, uh, yeah, official data says, tells me that the circumstances remain unexplained. However, you know, it is fairly um, non-surprising, if you think about it, to know what happened with these guys here. After that, Stalin continued to write messages to Lenin. He bombarded him with telegrams, demanding increasing amounts of stuff. Uh, he also asked in one of these telegrams a submarine and a number of minesweepers of modest size. In return, of course, he promised 10 million unicorns. Basically, uh, even though he promised great successes as a military commander at this point, Stalin was really nothing special at this point. Once he committed an entire division of green troops, which was captured completely by the whites. When some were later on rescued, uh, Stalin demanded the traitors to be executed. Assessing Stalin's performance, Lenin observed, quote, It is permissible to sacrifice 60,000 men, but can we just throw 60,000 away? I am perfectly aware that you killed many of the enemy. But had there been specialists, had it been a regular, not a guerrilla army, we would not have had to throw away 60,000 men. So yeah, this wasteful way with men, which becomes his characteristic really, was not the only way how Stalin managed to fail in Saritsyn. He was insubordinate and logistically incompetent. His forces were poorly handled and, and completely undersupplied at all times. He also completely exaggerated of everything he did in Saritsyn in his numerous amounts of telegrams, which nobody checked and whom were later fixed by uh, the propaganda materials of the Soviet Union. But yeah, his behavior at the front was not quite characteristic. Stalin was not prone to making promises which he could not deliver, nor did he move against rivals before he could be sure of crushing them. This this will again come uh, come to front later on. A lot of historians suggest here that maybe at some point all of this execute, executive authority kind of went to his head, kind of made him made him do rash things, made him commit mistakes, which he will later on uh, kind of play with admitting um, Stalin will not be happy in his later memoirs about his time in Tsaritsyn. Of course, he will exaggerate things, but in private letters you will see that he himself considers this not to be his best time in power. Also, then there's also the question of his attitude towards Trotsky, whom he hates with passion now. Trotsky was obviously an intellectual. He was an orator, a charismatic public figure, and a Jew. Trotsky, <clears throat> and I quote here from a nice description given to us by Alex de Jong, quote, inspired a loathing tinged with envy, unusual even by Stalin's standards, until he became the focus of everything that Stalin hated most. If anyone or anything could make him abandon calculation and fence-sitting to act irrationally, it was Trotsky, and this probably explains Stalin's behavior as he mounted his first direct challenge to his rival. End quote. Well, this is somewhat kind of like Trotsky explains the episode on what was going on there himself, uh, as he observes that, quote, Stalin joined forces with Voroshilov, which was crude and incompetent, 
but did so in such a way that he could beat a retreat at any moment. End quote. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. On a more personal note, while Stalin and his gang members, Voroshilov and Budionny, were plotting and actively working against Trotsky, whom they called, quote, commander of the operette, loudmouth, and comrade ha-ha-ha, Stalin also began flirting, to the best of his abilities, of course, with his young 17-year-old secretary, Nadezhda Aluliyeva. Uh, by this point, Stalin himself was 39, by the way. They lived in a fancy train sleeping car, uh, the same one he had arrived with in Saritsyn. It had belonged to a professional singer, who had covered the walls with light blue silk decorations, and it, together with, you know, being Stalin, must have left a deep impression in the young girl. And Nadia wasn't alone there. Wives uh, used to support uh, the generals at that point in the front, so wives of both Voroshilov and Budionny also were there in Saritsyn. So, you know, I'm sure they had a lot of fun together. You know who didn't have fun? Trotsky. Because, for example, in October, his patience ran out completely, and he sent a telegram to Lenin. Quote, I absolutely insist that Stalin be recalled. Things on the Tsaritsyn sector are going badly despite superior forces. Voroshilov is capable of handling a regiment, but not an army of 50,000 men. However, I will leave him in command of the 10th Army if he reports to the front commander. Until now, there has not been one communique from Tsaritsyn. I order reports on reconnaissance and operations to be sent twice daily. If this is not done by tomorrow, I shall have Voroshilov court-martialed and publish it in the army orders. You see, Stalin had tried to kind of short-circuit Trotsky, had poked him uh, so many times that he hoped Trotsky would fail completely. And, you know, if they had succeeded in their military operations, then Stalin and Voroshilov probably could have claimed complete credit for all the success in this war. And, you know, although Stalin was behaving like a true murderous monster, Lenin did not really come down too hard on him at this point, as he was also constantly sending telegrams to Tsaritsyn, asking for produce, for grain, for all sorts of vegetables, for everything. At one point, after such a telegram, they even spent an hour on the phone, which was rare at this time. Late in October 1918, Lenin sent Svetlov to fetch Stalin with a special train. 
At this point, due to the political situation, due to the fact that he really needed Trotsky for his operations and wanted to still show some respect there and had to operate very, how to say this, politically around things, he did not want Stalin to consider this recall a disgrace. So he gave him a series of appointments, one of which was membership in the General Revolutionary War Council. Lenin also put him on a new committee to coordinate the war effort and use of resources in general, the Council of Workers and Peasants Defense, on which Stalin sat as Lenin's personal executive assistant. Trotsky, who will write years later as a bitter loser, explains that Stalin's new posts as some sops to his ego, and he adds that, quote, it gave him a chance to express his views on military matters without getting in Trotsky's way. Uh, Stalin really did not even comment on these documents at their writing at this point. Now, later on, in late 1918, Stalin, together with our friend Felix Dzerzhinsky, the head of Cheka, went to the Siberian front on a fact-finding mission. Soviets had not been doing well there, and the Third Army had just lost the city of Perm through sheer incompetence. Stalin usually, you know, had a good eye of organizational problems. He was good at that. Not so much at direct military command, but organizing was his thing. And, you know, he didn't allow such petty things as morals to send in his way, and, uh, quote, he had by this point pro proved himself a talented troubleshooter. This is from uh, from my communist source friends, and I have to add here that, yeah, shoot trouble he did. At this point, he quickly recognized that the problems in this third army were uh, a lot related to the personnel, to the human resources. He will become a master of dealing with human resources, and, you know, this will, again, teach him how to get power there. Also, he notes that uh, one of the biggest issues here was, quote, lack of proper channels of communication between the local organization and center head office. Well, he, resp he responded to these issues by making some organizational changes and instituted a recruitment and training scheme to deal with staff deficiencies. Like I said, he's a master of human resources. Stalin also took the opportunity to once again attack Trotsky, while producing... In words of a military historian Erickson, quote, a report that was a model of incisiveness in its display of the present weaknesses and action taken in the light of these recommendations produced a noticeable strengthening of the Soviet left wing to the north. This report was critical of Trotsky and his military council, obviously, whose, quote, so-called instructions and orders disorganized the control of the front and the armies. A criticism confirmed by another Bolshevik secretary to the Central Committee and uh, an addition to this uh, rivalry between Stalin and Trotsky. And this Bolshevik also dislikes Trotsky's administrative style, quote, Trotsky sets the tone for the whole of this system. Frequent changes of political workers and commanders, crowding the front with a great number of party workers and Trotsky's princely journeys along the front. All these are symptoms of the system of organized panic. Obviously, Stalin in this, again, criticized the use of ex-Zarist officers as he believed only, only true proletariat could fight for the cause. And, you know, he again, once again, op opposed 
the Trotsky's use of traditional as opposed to guerrilla tactics, suggesting to Lenin in constant telegrams, which I'm sorry, I will not bother you with, uh, suggesting that constantly that, quote, Trotsky was an experienced and foolhardy commander. The question of these ex-officers and traditional and uh, guerrilla tactics was discussed in the 8th Party Congress, which was held in the spring of 1919. By the way, with the whole, you know, civil war still going on a lot. And Trotsky's policies at this Congress had technically the support of Lenin, but they were obviously under harsh criticism. See, Stalin there manoeuvred with, uh, with a lot of so to speak, delicacy. See, even my communist sources here say that he in this Congress speaks even though previously he had supported some guerrilla tactics and, you know, was in this was was in this opposition group. Uh, he personally states that this must all be fought against and the communist sources say that he always went, went with what Lenin wanted and that is building a full red Soviet uh, worker-peasant army. Even though, according to his previous messages and everything, and other sources, it's not so simple. Technically, Stalin never went out on a limb in public. He really professed support for Lenin, who kind of likes Trotsky's ideas at this point, while he always sides with Voroshilov when the latter decides to criticize Trotsky. And Trotsky obviously singled Stalin out as the leader of the so-called Tsaritsyn group, which was, quote, bent on destroying my authority and attacking my supporters, end quote. And, yeah, this was the stricter setup of lines between this Stalin-Trotsky antagonism. See, Trotsky was the thinking man's revolutionary. He was a charismatic figure of the demagogue, so to speak, but very political, very hardcore revolutionary. And he was backed by a number of loyal supporters, a lot of whom were Jewish, and he was uh, kind of this intellectually supported guy. But he remained a political lightweight within the party, as, you know, he had arrived there later than the rest of them. Stalin's supporters, however, were less educated, but more hardy men. They had experience of life in the underground, because Stalin has led them in all these underground presses and the great heist of Tbilisi, which he spoke about all of these things. And and uh, he was basically together with the proletariat, because their strategies and tactics are often by the same military historian Erikson called proletarian. Basically, they favored uh, favored loosely organized informal units effective enough against poorly led or opposition in open country. So, this Tsaritsyn thing gave Stalin a taste for command and provided him with his first military supporters. When Voroshilo was later on transferred to the southern front, Stalin suggested to Lenin that he would be sent there too. Trotsky opposed his request, anticipating that Stalin would, again, try to poke Trotsky with a sharpened stick and cause all sorts of trouble for him. But Lenin here decided to not to take any signs, signs and temporarily assigned Stalin to the defense of uh, St. Petersburg, which at this point really needed defending. It was threatened by, white, by a white army led, led by General Yudenich, and the discipline of the Bolshevik troops was really, really low there. When a local garrison mutinied, Stalin used the opportunity to take a personal touch, so to speak, of. He recaptured the fort Krasnaya Gorka, which was occupied by the mutineers, and sent Lenin the following telegram, quote, 
Naval experts maintain that is contrary to naval science to capture Krasnaya Gorka from the sea. I can only deplore such so-called science. The swift capture of Gorka was due to the grossest interference in operations by me and civilians generally, even to the point of countermanding orders on land and sea and imposing our own. I consider it my duty to declare that I shall continue to act in this way, despite all my veneration for science. And yeah, Stalin again decides to boast that even though he's technically a political and a civilian commander, he knows best when it comes to military orders. And you know, distance from the main headquarters at this point kind of emboldened him to take a harsh independent line from the army command to a degree that would later even surprise Lenin. Stalin returned to Moscow in early July, satisfied with this state of defenses in St. Petersburg. However, the city came under threat once again in the autumn of 1919, when Yudenich again nearly took it. This time it was Trotsky who rushed north, turned defeat into a brilliant victory, and was given a triumphant welcome on his return to Moscow. He didn't send any self-glorifying uh, self -glorifying telegrams to Lenin, by the way. So far, the new regime, by this point, by the Trotsky's victory, had not decorated the people, you know, responsible for army command, kind of their, their heroes. Successful field commanders, at th this case, were given wristwatches, which were rarity back, th back these days. The Politburo now voted to invest Trotsky with the newly invented Order of the Red Banner. Towards the end of the meeting, or so Trotsky wrote, Kamenev proposed that Stalin be given the decoration too. And when asked why, he replied, Can't you understand? This is Lenin's idea. Stalin cannot live unless he has what someone else has. He will never forgive it. And you know, obviously this is just some some random, random gossip here, and this is what Trotsky says. But Lenin's assessment of Stalin's character was accurate enough, but it's unlikely that he decorated him to placate some sort of ego. More probably that Lenin wished to keep a balance between Trotsky and Stalin. Historic precedent had great prestige for Marxists in the danger of Trotsky, the big military hero, following in the footsteps of the young Napoleon, as they really equated at this, uh, this point themselves with the French Revolution, as you may have noticed from uh, the Lenin series where we discussed his writings, the comparisons are always present there, and, you know, Marxism, Marxism always believes on this historical law, so their revolution is a continuation of the French Revolution. So this this view presented by more or less uh, most Western authors that I've read, both the Jung and Montefiore, it, it kind of shines through here. But, but you have to think about it here that it's it kind of kind of boggles my mind still that someone someone is using Stalin as a counterweight to Trotsky, and someone is afraid of Trotsky taking power at this point. Because you know we we know it we know in hindsight what happens further, but but hey, well Lenin here decided that might be this is the smartest thing to do. This counterweight, Stalin, was finally sent south. The White Army under Denikin had had a really great autumn campaign there. They had captured Kursk, Voronezh, and Orel, and you know they were starting to you know, provide some threat to Moscow by this point. 
here, in this, this occasion, Stalin did not intrigue against Trotsky, which is surprising. Although Stalin's historians here, especially on my communist side, provide a grand list of his achievements here, but they're actually, you know, not that documentally provable. Here, according again to Erikson, we see two schools of thought about the way to counterattack Denikin. One school wanted a flanking movement from the southeast, the second favored a push down from the north. Stalin had originally favored the former plan, but once he understood the logistic problems, because, you know, it, this whole thing involved attacking across the axis of numerous rivers and railway lines, rather than moving down these things, he began to favor the alternative, which proved successful over time. In time, Stalin became the architect of the plan, and the part played by Trotsky found its way into history's dustbin. According to Voroshilov, Stalin's court historian for military matters, Stalin went to the front with an order signed by Lenin, ordering Trotsky to take no part in the fighting, which is extremely unlikely, and I cannot find any part of this uh, order in my Russian sources, which would be actually kind of based in documentations, except, again, on rumors. Trotsky's account of the whole campaign, by the way, lists at least 80 documents signed by him relating to it, so it's much more likely than Trotsky's version here is... is that, that Trotsky actually did whole, this whole fight against the Nikan. Yeah, that's more likely. The southern campaign here concluded the civil war, as Rangel's front collapsed in the autumn of 1920. The remnants of Rangel's army and a considerable civilian population found themselves at the mercy of the Bolsheviks. An allied fleet, by the way, in the process of making a departure, took off some of these people, but only some of them. And, you know, the guys left here, the civilians, were very anxious to leave before the Reds arrived. Uh, sometimes they were using machine guns to discourage the remainder from attempting to join their more fortunate friends and relations. An Allied fleet, in the process of making a hasty departure, took off some, but by no means all, of those anxious to leave before the Reds arrived. Because, you see, Reds sometimes used machine guns to discourage the remainder from attempting to join their more fortunate friends and relations of those people who had managed to escape this whole, you know, escapade with uh, Bolsheviks coming in your village. At this point in autumn... Stalin also manages to actually marry Nadezhda Aluliyeva, so, you know, he's married man once again with his 18-year-old wife. Because, well, now they can get married, finally, which is pretty good. Stalin's last experience of active service took place in 1920, when he acted as a political commissar for the Southwestern Front during the brief Russo-Polish conflict, which we spoke about in detail in our Lenin series. But here, in short, just so you remember... Uh, Poland there wanted to establish uh, an eastern frontier by force of arms, and it was led by Marshal Pilsudski. They successfully invaded Ukraine and captured Kiev. Budzianny's first cavalry army kind of threw it out and pushed it back to Polish soil, while the main body of the Red Army advanced on Warsaw. That one was led by Mikhail Tukhachevsky, who was a former Tsarist officer, of aristocratic origins nonetheless, and uh, kind of one of the most outstanding Bolshevik commanders of the Civil War. He was an ambitious career soldier and was perceived by this Tsaritsyn group as Trotsky's man. 
Indeed, they had even criticized Trotsky for giving a, quote, former aristocrat, end quote, responsible military command. And at this point, the Red Army mounted a two-pronged attack. Tukhachevsky led a drive that took him to the gates of Warsaw, while the 1st Cavalry Army, led by Bidjony, and other units of the south on the southwestern front pushed down and away from Warsaw towards Lvov. They expected to be welcomed with open arms by Polish peasants and workers. And they got the, they got disappointed really quickly in their expectations. As their advance petered out, they were ordered north to cover Tukhachevsky's left flank which was extended and dangerously exposed. The orders were disobeyed by the commands of Stalin, who was, in, again, Trotsky's expression, because Trotsky writes a lot about Stalin in this era, quote, waging his own war. Unconcerned by the state of Tukhachevsky's flank, Stalin continued his advance on Lvov. The Polish army counterattacked in front of Warsaw, broke Tukhachevsky and threw him back while Budionny had to cut his way home with extremely heavy losses. Yeah, early heavy historians at this point take the view that Stalin's disobedience was one of the principal causes of the defeat. Although Stalin kind of attempted to shift responsibility onto Ivan Smilga, political commissar on the Western Front, and another appointee of Trotsky, that really wasn't convincing at the time. Lenin's only recorded comment on all this situation, by the way, is, quote, <clears throat> Eh, who on earth want to get to Warsaw by the way of Lvov? And this more or less concludes Stalin's direct service at war during this civil war era. But now, now it's time for Ask Uncle Joe. And this time it's not going to be Ask Uncle Joe. I shall instead answer a non-Uncle Joe related question sent to us by our listeners, who just recently found out about Red Rifleman. As previously in Lenin's series, we spoke about the riflemen who were fighting for the national independent Latvia, the bourgeoisie Latvia, as Stalin would call it. But yeah, let us look at an article from the newspaper The Communist, which was the official paper of the Communist Party of America, from August the 2nd, 1919. It's called Regarding Latvia's Army, which was interesting because uh, in November the 18th, 1918, the kind of independent Latvia was proclaimed. But at this point, we were also involved in this Soviet civil war, again, as in those series. So here's the article, quote, <clears throat> Soviet Russia knows quite well the Lettish sharpshooters, which we now know as Latvian Red Riflemen. The Russian proletariat knows the sacrifices of the Lettish soldiers laid on the altar of the socialistic revolution. Despite all attempts of our enemies, despite Lockhart's subsidies, lies of the Kazan and Siberian counter-revolutionists, the Lettish troops have remained faithful defenders of the socialist revolution. And when the battle cry was raised, to Latvia, the red sharpshooters and the Lettish workers came forward from the vast expanses of Soviet Russia toward the west, in order to create their own Soviet Latvia. Many still think that Red Latvia acts separately from Russia, but this is a great error. Latvia is so closely connected with the Russian social revolutionists that there can be even no thought as to their being separate. If one speaks about the uprising of the proletariat against the bourgeoisie and of capturing power at all cost, this can be said of the Lettish proletariat. 
They had taken the power into their own hands even before the arrival of the Red Sharpshooters. The Lettish soldiers have proven to be the defenders of the proletarian gains. The whole civil population thought that the clearing of the Baltic region from the White Guards was a matter of a few days, but in the higher directing spheres, people regarded this question quite differently and expressed grave apprehensions. I remember now, after the taking of Valka and Valmiera, Comrade Vatsiatis was indignant when the main forces moved not for not towards Reval, which is Tallinn now, but against Riga. It was not the fault of Vatsiatis that his strategic plan was not complied with. But this is not the subject of our discussion. One questions the, the directing military thing is clear. The apprehend heads have come true. All know the results. Sections of the Estonian Red Army had to retreat. The heaviest burden of fighting with the White Guards and Estonian and Finnish bands was carried out on the northern front of Latvia. The offensive of the Estonian-Finnish White Guards began at the time when the entire front of Latvia was yet weak. At many points and in many directions, comparatively small detachments were operated, which have not yet succeeded in effecting a junction. War commissariatists which is a weird old word, were not yet organized, through which we might have begun mobilization and training the mobilized and volunteers. Further military operations disclosed immediately that the army of Latvia had not reached the stage desired and that it had passed through a period of disease. The army of Latvia at the present moment is undergoing the same things as the Russian Red Army underwent at the beginning of its existence. The third conference of communistic sections of Lettish regiments, which took place in Riga on February the 20th, was characteristic. The question of building up a Latvian army was discussed at this conference. From the reports from different localities, it became clear that the Latvian army suffered from lack of discipline and that this had produced a ruinous effect. The officers' command had not teamed up yet. Rights and duties of separate organs are not yet defined. Everyone looks at the army's business from his own particular point of view and pursues his own method. As a result, the wagon is still there. Latvia's army is an inseparable part of the whole Russian Red Army and must carry out the task put before it by the whole revolutionary front. Therefore, the building of the Lettish army must be conducted according to one common principle on one united front. Now this is, um, this is a bunch of nonsense. Sure, this is kind of uh, interesting. Again, this article was published on August the 2nd, 1919, when we in Riga in October uh, were, were, had proclaimed our own independence. See, Bolshevik forces crossed into Latvia from Russia in December 1918, and they quickly took control over most of Latvia, except for a small sliver in the southwest. These quick gains were reversed in relatively short order, though, and uh, the article conveniently explains these military setbacks of the Latvian Red Riflemen by blaming commanders, the command structure, and undisciplined troops. But yeah, the explanation for this reversal is political, not military. <laughs> the uh, Red Riflemen, or the Lettish Sharpshooters, as this article called them, as noted in the article, yeah, they had demonstrated a high level of e effectiveness during the communist takeover and following civil war in Russia. The Latvian troops were kind of legendary for their discipline and skilled officer corps, at least those who were there in the Red Army there. So what happened? You know what? Actual Soviet communism happened. So, um... Instead of consolidating their military gains and tactically introducing the new order, these guys chose a different path. The period became known as the Red Terror here, the first one amongst, amongst many. Uh, you know, the usual summer executions, property confiscation, confiscatory taxes, concentration camps, all of the nice stuff. 
but yeah, support for the nascent Latvian Socialist Soviet Republic, which was there at the time, quickly evaporated both within the civilian population and armed forces. And, you know, what the article here describes as a lack of discipline were in fact mass desertions and extremely low morale as the troops began to realize, well, what they had brought up there. And many of the Red Riflemen were attracted to Lenin's promises to end World War I and a guarantee of ethnic autonomy, but the effects of what actually happened were in stark contrast to what they wanted, and in many cases they crossed over and then fought against Soviet control, which ended up in 1922 signing of a peace, the peace treaty between independent Latvia and the Soviet forces. But yeah, how did the Red Riflemen actually get there? Well, after the February Revolution of 1917, the same things happened among Latvian units that were kind of typical for the whole Russian army of the time. Political forces competed for influence, overall discipline was lost, soldiers were unwilling to fight, and so on. The processes were greatly strengthened by the Riflemen's previous experience, resulting in the conviction that the highest military commands and officers in general, incompetence, had caused the great losses of Latvian military units. In April 1917, the Executive Committee of Latvian Riflemen Regiments was selected. It proclaimed support for the Bolsheviks' main principles, such as peace without annexations. Nonetheless, most officers and riflemen were not satisfied with such a course of events. So, many units recalled the representatives to this uh, U- Latvian Riflemen Regiment Union. And instead instead joined up with the National Union of Latin Soldiers. So these guys in the article are, in fact, a vast minority of all the riflemen who had fought in the Civil War, of which, by the way, uh, even a, even kind of a personal guard of Lenin was formed out of some uh, 2,000 Bolshevik uh, red riflemen. So yeah, at one point, Latvian riflemen did participate in... Um, in this civil war in Russia, and I will dedicate a whole episode to this. It's just that I had to explain that, yeah, just they they were in the Tsarist army, and then someone just took them over in Russia, which they weren't very really happy about, and many deserted. Then, then together with the Bolsheviks and commissars, they tried to take over the territory of Latvia already after the signing of Brest-Litovsk, and that really didn't didn't end that well for them. For more details, again uh, on the whole, how the war went in the Baltics. Listen to our Lenin episode. This'll be it for today. And thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this episode, which was made in short order, as to the fact that I'm, I I spent most of the time translating this interview with Dmitry Potapenko, which I hope to bring you soon enough. Anyhow, I'm glad that we moved uh, moved again forward with the Stalin series. And have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the Western Border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.